Thanks, Matt. I appreciate the prayers. Um, So, this morning we're talking about Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. It's kind of an intense passage, so I have a question for us to look over uh, as as we enter into it. What do you fear? Uh, people fear a lot of things. Uh, I, I googled phobias, you know, just to get a, a taste of what people fear. And people fear heights, spiders, open spaces, closed spaces. Uh, there's actually a phobia of the number 13. So maybe one of you fears that. Uh, I'm not sure. I do have a feeling, though, that if we polled maybe only Christians and maybe we were a little bit more honest with each other, the questions were asked a little bit differently, I think we might get different results. And what I mean is this. Say you fear spiders. Maybe you're my wife. Uh, (laughs) If I were to say, hey, Rebecca, kill that spider. Or you can come with me, and we're going to knock on some random person's door, and we're going to say, hey, brother, hey, sister, you know, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ or you will go to hell for eternity. She might say, I'll throw something at the spider. You know? And I think, you know, we, we hear the word evangelism and we kind of shudder. Right? There are a few people, I have a few friends who, bless their hearts, they're just evangelists. <laughs> and I love them for it. But most of us, we hear that word, and it kind of strikes fear into our hearts. We think, well, what do I say? What do I do? What if they don't want to be my friend afterwards? What if they don't want to hear what I have to say? You know, maybe if I ask you, hey, you want to go evangelize with me after church? You might say, man, that sounds awesome. I'm, like, really busy at specifically the time that's right after church, though, so I'll pray for you, right? Why? Why do we do this? Jesus offers life, hope, forgiveness, purpose, meaning. And we have a hard time wanting to tell people about it. So what's the hang-up? I think that one of the Christian phobias that we have is that we don't want to cause relational stress. And this is a cultural thing, too. It's not just us. But we don't want to put people on the spot. We don't want to cause division And I think that we're actually specifically afraid to put people on the spot for the sake of the gospel. I mean, think about this. You know, people, maybe people in here have had property line disputes, right? Uh, Maybe maybe you've seen people, Christians, debate over whether you breastfeed your child or you don't, or you vaccinate or you don't. You know, people are willing to make enemies over a lot of things that don't matter. But when it comes to the most important thing, we have a hard time. And my goal this morning isn't to cause people to just feel bad. <laughs> I don't want people to feel bad. As, as we look at this passage in Luke, my goal is to show us that there's a solution. There's a number of solutions in this passage, and they're throughout the Scriptures. So how do we overcome it? How do we overcome our fear of rejection? We'll take a look at the passage and see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. So our text, if you're going to turn to it or read it up here, is Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. Starting in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. 
And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter first, uh, you, you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Let's pray. Father, you are too good to us. You love us. You save us. You, uh, you give us a purpose. You give us life and joy. Not only that, Lord, but you give us your word. And I pray that this morning, as we open up your word, and we see what you have to say and what you've done, in the person of Jesus Christ on our behalf, I pray that we would be challenged. I pray that we would be encouraged and edified as well. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would apply your word to our hearts to shape us and mold us into the image of your son. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we really get into the meat of the passage, I wanted to make a note on Old Testament echoes in the New Testament. Luke is littered with these. And what I mean is this. For example, uh, just I think it was two weeks ago, Jordan preached on the Mount of Transfiguration. Many of you remember that. Uh, One thing he mentioned is that Moses actually had a very similar experience in the Old Testament. He went up to Sinai. He met with the Lord, and he came down, and his face was shining like the sun. Uh, The Israelites were terrified, and he actually had to cover his face so that they wouldn't be afraid. And so then when we see Jesus go up on the Mount, and he's glowing in white garments... Not only his face, but his whole person is glowing. The disciples would have immediately thought of Moses. And so, where do we find that here? If you're like me, the first question you ask when you read this passage is, 72 people, what in the world, (laughs) right? I mean, we all think, why? And maybe you're reading a different version of the Bible and it says 70. There's actually a lot of uh, disagreement on whether it's 70 or 72, but... Uh, interestingly enough, it doesn't matter because both numbers hold significance to the Old Testament 
And I, I think that's probably why they're, they're split uh, in terms of what, which manuscripts are right, uh, just because both numbers carry a lot of weight. So as an Israelite hears, as one of these Jews hears, Jesus say, hey, I need 72 of you, or I need 70 of you. They're thinking, that's interesting. Moses called 70 elders to help him lead Israel, or that's interesting. The Old Testament talks a lot about 72 nations, uh, things like that. So I'm going to stick with 72 since it's in the ESV, which is what I'm preaching from, and I believe it's what's on the screen as well. Last week, chapter 9 concluded with Jesus telling his disciples that following him will be really hard. Jordan mentioned that I was going to come in today and talk about that a little bit. So now, in chapter 10, he chooses his 72 disciples to go out, and he tells them that they will be lambs among wolves. He says, you're going to travel without any comfort. You're not going to take anything with you. And, by the way, you'll be rejected. What a call, right? You know, Jesus says, all right, you know, you chosen few. Gather, gather around. I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Wow. So what, what can they, what can we take comfort in as we go out proclaiming the coming of the salvation of the Lord Jesus, right? Because we do the same thing. And this morning, we're going to discuss three truths found in this particular text, which will help us to have our fears alleviated as we represent Jesus in the world. So the first one is that we are appointed by God. And the second one is that the harvest is plentiful. And the third one is that our rejection is God's rejection. So point number one, if you're a note taker. Let's look back at the text. Let's look at verse one. It says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them. Now, when we hear the word appointed, uh, we might not be able to make this connection, but the only other time this word is used in the New Testament Luke uses it, same, same author, in Acts chapter 1. And what's happening there is Judas has died, and they're replacing him as, they're, they're gathering in and saying, hey, who's the next disciple? Who's going to join us and be one of us? And they choose Matthias by way of casting lots, and they say that God, they trust God to appoint him by way of casting lots. It shows a lot of trust uh, that God is over even the random things, Right? But the idea here is that the Lord appointed Matthias, right? They didn't, they didn't gather around and say, let's, let's, let's get that guy. Uh, the Lord appointed him. And in the same way, he appoints us. Jesus appointed these people, and we are appointed as well. This will lead us to trust him rather than to fear. Why? Because God is on our side. He chose us, right? We don't represent ourselves. We don't go on our own authority. We go on the authority of the Lord God. Now, I have six siblings, so I think this illustration will make sense to anybody with siblings or children or uh, friends with siblings or children. So hopefully I've got all my my bases covered here. Uh, But I have experienced, and I'm sure many of you have experienced, your, your, your mom says to you, Hey, Josh, I need you to go tell your sister to come here right now. And what do you feel? You f- you're like, yes. <laughs> you know, I get to go and say, hey, 
stop it. Mom says she needs you now, right? We are, we're empowered. We're like, this isn't just me bossing my sister around. This is my mom. I'm speaking for my mom, and she wants you to go. And you have to listen to me because she sent me, right? We've all, we've all done it. Uh, or, maybe, or maybe you had a younger sibling who did that to you, and they felt, they felt cool. Listen, God appoints us, right? And so because he appoints us, we're also empowered. We're not going on our own authority thinking, well, I'm just going to go do this thing because why not, right? No, God has saved us and redeemed us, and we have the Holy Spirit. We're empowered to go out and to do the work of the Lord. And guess what? God doesn't make mistakes, you know, when, when we go and we try to share our faith and we're fumbling around and we're thinking, I don't know what I'm doing, God doesn't look at you and say, you fool, what are you doing? Why, why did I save this person? No, God looks at us and he says, man, this, my child is trying his best to obey, right? We, we're not failures to God. He chose us. And he wants us to tell our brothers, our sisters, our friends to come to him, right? We will begin to experience freedom from the fear of rejection when we begin to view joining in God's redemptive purpose in the world as more than a task that we have to do. It's not just important, but it's our distinct and unrivaled privilege and joy because God chose us. And never will we feel more free than when we are doing what we are called to do. He empowers us to do his work. Point number two, the harvest is plentiful. We're going to look at verse two here. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So here, the image that Jesus is drawing on is agrarian, as it often is in the Gospels. Uh, I'm assuming most of you probably know this, but I guess it's worth explaining that if you plant seeds, there is a time called a harvest when it's all ready to be reaped, right? Okay, let's go out. The corn's ready. The wheat is ready. We're going to reap the benefits of what has been done. So in the same way, what Jesus is saying here is that there are lost sheep. There are people who need to know him who are waiting to hear the gospel. And they will come to know the Lord. Because of that, we're not wasting our time. You know, we're not, we're not doing this thing again on our own authority, just thinking, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do it and who knows. No, we are promised that the harvest is just waiting. Verse 6 uses a phrase, son of peace. If a son of peace is there, your, your peace will rest upon him. What does that mean? Well, if you are a son, particularly at this time, but it, it kind of holds weight now, but at this time, if you're a son of this man or that man, uh, that is who you are. There's a reason Johnson is a last name. Williamson. These names exist because your children are directly identified with who you are as a parent. And so everything that they are, they own, everything has to do, it goes right back to who their father is. And when this says a son of peace, 
This is a way of saying a son of God. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, for example. And so when it says, if a son of peace is there, what this is really saying is if there's someone in that home who is God's, your peace will rest upon him. These people, us even, where people purchased with Jesus' blood on the cross. The payment has been made, they are his, but they need to hear. They need to hear the gospel. We needed to hear the gospel. And when we know that God has people waiting to hear the gospel, and maybe they don't even know it. You know, a lot of times, many of us can think of when we hadn't heard the gospel yet, and we are hard-hearted. You know, we, we maybe even hated God. And someone came, maybe just the word came. We read the Bible, we heard a scripture, and we were convicted. So some of these people we wouldn't recognize and say, there's a son of peace, Right? But when we know that God has even those people who are his own, who just need to hear the word of the Lord and they'll come to know him, we're freed from our fear of rejection because we're guaranteed results. So I know some of you are soccer fans. I played soccer, so I'm going to use my second soccer illustration in two sermons. So get ready. Um, If you don't know what a penalty kick is, it's where it's just you standing with the ball 12 yards out from the goal, and it's just you and the goalkeeper. It's basically a free shot at goal if you can do it, right? So imagine yourself in the World Cup finals, not in 2018 because the USA didn't make it, uh, you know, 2022. Imagine yourself in World Cup finals, and, you know, you're in extra time, and if you make this penalty kick, that's it. That's, that's a game you won for your country, and you'll be famous forever because the USA hasn't even, even come close to winning. Well, imagine, as you're standing there, you know, you're backing up, and you're just waiting for the referee to blow the whistle and say, go ahead. He says, well, hold on a second. I've actually, I've decided that regardless of what you do here, you can just retake it until you make it. Well, he can't do that, but if he did... He's guaranteed that you'll score. He's guaranteed that you will win the World Cup for your country. And so the result automatically is, you know, you're sitting there trembling, and then he says that, and you're like, oh. <laughs> what do I possibly have to be afraid of? So your, your, your nerves are calmed. You are more confident. More than likely, you'll perform better. But guess what? Even if you don't, <laughs> you get another shot, right? You could fail, but ultimately, you'll succeed. I think that we often view evangelism as if we're standing for the game-winning penalty kick, and the referee doesn't say that. And it's just us, and it's the goal, and it's the goalkeeper, and it's all on us. You know, If we don't say the right words in the right order, if we don't you know, plead the right thing, and if we don't pray the right words ahead of time, then we failed. And we are responsible for sending this person to hell. I think very few of us would probably voice that, but that's how we feel. Guys, the game isn't in our hands. Here, Jesus is saying, there are already people that I will purchase with my blood. And we're on the other side of that. Jesus has already purchased his people with his blood. We're guaranteed success. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says that the gospel 
is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The power is in the gospel. Isaiah 55, 11 says that God's word will not return to him void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. Amen. We are called to be faithful. We're called to obey, right? So when we go out and we share the gospel, we say, this is what Jesus has done for you if you believe in him. We've succeeded. We see in these verses that as long as we do our part, we have succeeded because our part is obedience. So after, after this, Jesus is explaining the task at hand. So he says, you're going to go out. And then he gives them a lot more information. He says that they will be lambs in the midst of wolves and they shouldn't take any resources other than their current clothing. What is he teaching them? He's teaching them that their success isn't contingent on their own strength, their own resources, their own money, their own influence. Just the fact that they're present and they're obeying the Lord. They're saying, Jesus has come. The kingdom of heaven is near. They've succeeded. God will provide everything else. So we see in Paul's letter to Corinth, he says that I planted and Apollos watered and God gave the growth. And so in the same way, as we go out and we share the gospel, maybe somebody else has already planted a seed, and maybe we're watering and we don't realize it. But even if God gives the growth, it's not because I watered. It's because God gives the growth. He graciously blesses our faithfulness. And when we begin to understand that, we begin to understand that God blesses our obedience and that we just have to share the gospel. We are, we are freed from our fear of rejection because, again, God has his people. People will know, uh, people, will, people will hear the word and they will respond. Our third and final point is that our rejection is God's rejection. And that sounds kind of weird. That actually, if you, if you think about it a different way, it puts a lot of pressure on you, right? You're like, well, if, if they reject me, then they reject God. So, uh, but actually, the, the important part here is the opposite. Look with me at verse 16. Jesus says, The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. In our culture today, we have kind of a virtue of tolerance, if you will. Uh, the idea is that if you, if you hurt someone's feelings, then you're wrong. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you said, but if you hurt their feelings you're wrong. Many of you may not know this, but in Canada, you can be jailed for misgendering someone. It's, it's scary stuff. And, and in our culture, you're just socially jailed, right? You're ostracized. If you're, you're, you're mean, you know, you say things that people don't want to hear. But truth makes enemies, right? You know, if I say, A is true, and somebody else says, well, I thought... I believe B is true. Well, there you go. <laughs> Division, right? You've, you've offended someone because they think, well, how, how can we both be right? One of us is right, and it's obviously me. And then, uh-oh, <laughs> you've made an enemy, right? Well, sometimes we need to confront in love. If you've known someone who is an alcoholic, 
Maybe they're committing adultery, doing something that is not only harmful for other people, but it's self-destructive as well. The best thing that you can do for them is to say, hey, brother, you can't do this. What you're doing is bad for you, and because I love you, I'm going to cause potentially a division because I need to say this. You need to hear it. And when we do, it's really important that we remember in the context of our sharing the gospel particularly that when people reject us, Jesus says they're rejecting him. We can't allow ourselves to get caught up and take it personally when we try to share the gospel with somebody and they say, no, thank you, I don't want to do that. That sounds horrible. What God is doing here is he's taking the blame himself. He's saying, look, you're free to go out, share the gospel. When you're rejected, don't worry about it. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And in a weird way, that does give us confidence. Because God can handle it. He can handle rejection. He's God, okay? It isn't personal. In the first century, Rome was extending boundaries throughout the known world, right? And every time there was a battle, the emperor would send someone back to all the towns and he would say, you know, tell everyone that we won, right? And so this messenger, his job is just to go out and say, good news, right? He just goes out and he says, we won, well, can you imagine if there's someone who maybe has you know, migrated from that place and they're living here in Rome and they're thinking, well, that's not a message I want to hear. I wanted my people to win. I maybe have family that was there. Maybe they reject the message, right? They say, I, I, I don't believe that and I won't believe that. <laughs> the messenger in this case, he's not, he can't take it personally, right? He's like, okay. <laughs> well, first of all, The emperor sent me, and I'm just doing my job, right? You may have heard this phrase, don't kill the messenger, (laughs) right? And he's freed from bitterness. Why would he be mad at someone for not believing him? It doesn't matter. Now, for us, it does matter. We have the freedom on the one hand, but we also have the weight of loving these people and wanting them to know the Lord. And so their rejection, when they reject the Lord, we don't say, hey, don't kill the messenger. <laughs> we, we hopefully are able to weep and pray and plead with them and with the Lord for our friend to be saved. And so we have freedom and motivation. It's a beautiful thing. It's a better task than the one this messenger has. There are two major applications here. The first is that our fears of rejection are alleviated by the fact that we aren't rejected. And again, that really does help us not to grow bitter in our hearts toward these people, or maybe them toward us. We say, no, like, this is my friend, and I love this person, and I've shared with them. They say no, but guess what? I love them. It's not personal. The second application is that even though this is true, we have to be very careful to make sure that we are not being rejected. Because, and what I don't mean is that people reject God. What I mean is that we personally are not the reason that the rejection is taking place. 
there are a lot of polls uh, in America. Uh, I looked over a few, and, and people basically said, hey, uh, if you could choose a few words to describe Christians, what would you choose? Uh, well, <laughs> almost all of them were negative, uh, if you're wondering. They were, uh, I saw one that said, who is, who is more homophobic? Is it Christians or Muslims? They said Christians. Well, Muslims kill homosexuals. But that just goes to show you the way that people think about us because oftentimes it's the way that we go about disagreeing with people. And so if we're a bad neighbor, a bad coworker, a bad son, a bad father, I don't know that we'll be taken seriously as we share the gospel. And in that case, we are being rejected. And we're getting in the way of the gospel People should want to hear what we have to say because we're a loving neighbor, because we're a loving person. They should think, man, I trust this guy because he cares about me. I'll hear him out. Maybe I won't agree, but I'll hear him out. Listen, we can be winsome, charming, kind, and loving, and still be rejected. And when we are inevitably rejected, we can allow ourselves not to take it personally. Again, no bitterness. Now, you know, maybe you're convicted of being a bad neighbor, a bad coworker, whatever it is. Listen, again, my goal here isn't guilt or anything like that. My goal is hope and the solution. And so I do want to remind everyone, including myself, that there's hope even when we fail. Again, God's word will not return to him void. And I think that the best witness you can have in those situations where you have really burned someone is to apologize. Admit that you're wrong. Ask for forgiveness. Not only are you able in that situation to live the gospel and say, look, this is what a redeemed life is like. I don't have to be in my pride and say, well, I won't apologize. I'm right. You know, we can humbly go and we can ask for forgiveness. Say that we're wrong. <laughs> we're accepted by God. You know, our friend, our friend needs to hear that. Not only that, but it's a phenomenal opportunity to actually share the gospel. Many times in my experience, conversations like this open up the person to want to hear what you have to say because most people don't apologize. Most people don't say, I was wrong, will you please forgive me? That's rare in our culture. And so if we're able to do that because we're confident that the Lord has appointed us and, and we're his people, he's accepted us. If we can do that, it enables people to want to hear us because it's a rare thing. So my hope this morning is that we'll leave here and we'll be lifted from the burden that we carry, the fear of evangelism, not wanting to open our mouths at work or wherever else because we don't want people to be offended by us because we've been appointed by God and he doesn't make mistakes. We're guaranteed success. The harvest is plentiful. And that even though rejection of the gospel is heartbreaking, it's not personal. Let's pray.